You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Time to fire up the VCR. This one's my favorite. Welcome to Analog Jones and the Temple Film. I'm Steve. And I'm Matt. And we're a VHS podcast that looks at the box art trailers behind the scenes. And we're going to number seven in our Amneville franchise review. Matt, tell me, what did you make me watch? We're, yeah, number seven, going really going through this series. <laughs> yeah. And who would have ever thought, like, back in the 70s when they made the first one, that they would have made seven at this point? Uh, uh, Amityville? A new generation. Once it hung in a fine old home. Like it? It's, uh, it's interesting. I want you to have it. Reflecting. Oh, where did you get this? Witnessing. It's fantastic. Watching. What do you see? In a place called Amityville. All its secrets. Maybe he just got to look at himself. All its memories. You know this man? All its mysteries. What does it say in the file about the mirror? Have become a legacy of terror. Passed from father to son. Maybe I'm going to commit the same crime. Maybe it's my destiny. Amityville, a new generation. Ah! Starring Terry O'Quinn of The Stepfather. And David Norton of An American Werewolf in London. Come back here! From the special effects team that brought you the original Amityville horror. And the blockbuster hit, The Hunt for Red October. Through this looking glass. Ah! A journey beyond fear. (laughs) Amityville, a new generation. I'm proud of you, son. The image of evil. A.K.A. Amityville 1993, Image of Fear. Oh, I didn't know it had, you know, a different title. Yeah, they, it's the same, It's all the same people that did the last one we did. The last one we did was 1992, It's About Time. And so this one was called 1993, Image of Fear was the original title. And then they changed it to A New Generation. And I'm going to be honest, I prefer A New Generation. I think having the years next to it could have really dated all these movies really poorly. <laughs> yeah, that surprised me it's the same people because it feels different. It does have that 90s feel, how they shot. I don't quite how to explain how it felt different. It just does. Yeah, it, and it is, you know, different director, different cinematographer. There's going to be a different feel. Uh, it's a couple of years later after they made the other ones. So technology is a little better. direct video is more of a thing than when they were working on the first one. So... There's there is definitely a different vibe, but it is similar enough to the last one because of a lot of the same people coming over. Well, this director, John Murlowski, he does a lot of direct to video movies. A lot. He's got 28 directing credits. I see Cop Dog. Okay, (laughs) direct to video. (laughs) (laughs) He also is the director of Santa with Muscles, the Hulk Hogan movie. I mean, that's something that everyone needs to watch. <laughs> it's something that I watched as a kid. Uh, it was always on USA or something like that. It was always, I don't know if I necessarily recommend it, but it is a slice of 90s. So <laughs> I'm telling you, the one that caught my eye right away was Zombie Hamlet. Yeah, I never even heard of that. It's from 2012, but it actually has actors that people know in it. It's kind of amazing. This guy, it's got Hulk Hogan in it also and Zach Braff. So, um, <laughs> 
Oh, no, no, it's not Zach Braff. It's the guy who looks like Zach Braff. Please go watch that. <laughs> uh, be- and then let me know if it's worth watching. <laughs> yeah, right. So reporting. Life's too short for us to try. <laughs> uh, but this director must be, he's able to pull good casts because even this movie, Amityville, A New Generation, has stacked character actor list here. Maybe it is the Amityville name that pulls this in. Yeah, and the last one was a success. So maybe there was some extra money kicking around to do this. Uh, One of the things I I mentioned, too, when we first started talking before we started recording was that uh, this is the benefit of shooting the movie in L.A., too, at this time. You could get all these great character actors in here because you're not shooting in, like, Arizona or Atlanta or, you know, you're not having to fly people out. You're not having to use locals. You're in L.A. So all these guys are right there. So that's probably another reason why they were able to get such a good stacked cast. I always like it when these movies shoot in L.A., but kind of like make it appear like they're in New York. Yeah, that was kind of the thing to do in in this time period, the the early 90s. These direct-to-video movies all kind of did that. They're like, okay, make sure there's no palm trees in the background. Got to make this look like the East Coast. Yep. Uh, always cracks me up, but it's too bright. It's too shiny. You you can dirty up the buildings, but there's something bright and shiny about California. When you go to New York, the sky's different. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like it's grayer, but not like in like a bad way. Just like it is. It's totally different. And these movies are so bright, especially. And this is probably because of smog and global warming and stuff like this. But those 90s L.A. movies have such a crisp sunshiny look that i don't think they do anymore again probably because of smog and stuff like that but like those early 90s late 80s la movies have such like a sunshiny warm feeling that are unique to just those movies now i don't know because i was watching fox news and they said global warming's fake so uh, i don't know who watches fox news anymore get over to newsmax like the real thinkers get on to this movie that came out in 1993 this vhs cover uh i've only seen one of them so i'm wondering if the one you have is the same so yeah my cover is the frame of the whole thing is the mirror frame so it's got like the little gargoyle head peeking out at the top um and yeah the whole frame of the vhs is the image of the frame and then within it is the mirror and it's broken and it says Amityville a new generation and we see the Amityville house with like glowing red lights coming out of sort of the eye windows that are famous that Amityville's famous for and it has a tagline of terror has a reflection all its own a lot of blues used on this like those 90s kind of day for night kind of blues very attractive cover I think I picked this one up blind just based on the cover. I mean, I was sold on the little gargoyle head at the top anyway. So, uh, but I think it's a solid cover and I think it's indicative of kind of what the movie is too. Yeah, I think this is probably the best Amityville cover. This broken mirror and everything like this uh, visually because I immediately when I saw it, like I never rented this film because we didn't have it in our, you know, little rental store. But when I saw it looking up all the VHS for Amityville, I think this one beats the, the 3D. I would say the kind of Republic Pictures ones are my favorite covers because I, I even really like the next one too. So I, I like this design. But again, I like like these 90s direct-to-video things. So of course I like this. But yeah, this one is one that I rented alone on the cover. And this might have been honestly the first Amityville movie that I saw because my video star had this one. Uh-oh, that's a soft spot. 
Yep. <laughs> All right. You want to read the back of this? Yeah. Flipping it over to the back, we've got a couple of stills. We've got like David Naughton looking in the mirror and seeing like a ghost image behind him. And we've got Sookie hanging. And we've got a monster, also David Naughton, when he has like the burned face in the cage. So those are our images kind of, again, showing the effects in it and the monsters and the horror. Not too much of ghosty things here, more like monsters, effects, practical things, you know, very early 90s. And our description is a beautiful but strangely dark antique mirror opens a doorway to gleaming modern horror in Amityville, a new generation. When photographer Keys Terry, Ross Partridge, cuffs, is given a mysterious old mirror by a crazy homeless man. His dreams are soon overtaken by visions of a murder so violently vivid, it's almost as if he's lived them himself. And slowly, the artist's loft that he shares with friends Sookie, Julia Nixon Soul, K2 Sidekicks, Dick, David Naughton, an American Wealth of London, and Polly, Richard Roundtree, City Heat, has turned into a living chamber of horrors, as they too fall prey to the dark, seductive powers of the mirror. Because as Keyes is about to discover, the ancient evil of Amityville is lurking behind the glass, and this blood-curling rampage of violence and terror is just the beginning of the legacy he is fated to inherit, and a destiny only he has the power to stop. He's the only one. It's, it's all up to him. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure, Keyes. <laughs> but uh, if you fuck this up, you'll probably just go to jail, because he's trying to murder people, so <laughs> they'll just stick him in jail, just like his daddy. Oops, spoilers. Uh, let's get into this tape let's put it in now available on video and dvd all right we actually got some trailers on these amnivilles it's been a while hasn't it a lot of these early ones didn't have it too uh so this is nice we're in the 90s we're in the direct-to-video era republic pictures was on fire with these things uh so this one has a couple and it's nice to see it starts off with a trailer for another one of these kind of series from this time, uh, the Witchboard movies. Uh, we get the trailer for Witchboard to the Devil's Doorway, which has another one of my 90s crushes, uh, Amy Dolan's in it. So I have a soft spot for that movie as well. Oh, so you've actually seen this one. Yeah, I've seen all the Witchboard movies. It's a fun series. There's three of them. Oh, man, if you ever need revenge on me, just make me watch the Witchboards. I think they're fun. They're fun little... It's similar to these and similar to... Pretty much any of those, you know, Night of the Demons and those kind of 90s franchises. Oh, well, if it's like Night of the Demons, I'll watch the shit out of it. <laughs> yeah, same director. So, oh, did, OK. <laughs> yeah, he did uh, Witchboard 1 and 2. So, OK, you've sparked my interest. I don't know if I'll actually remember to watch them, but They're, they'd be fun to find all of the VHSs. All right, cool. And then our second one here was the Red Shoe Diaries. But uh, Red Shoe Diaries, Another Woman's Lipstick. They made a ton of these uh, softcore movies in the uh, 90s. This was bread and butter for the Cinemax age. Yeah, that's what this seemed like. Maybe not quite the softcore porn they did at Cinemax, but like right below that. Yeah, like just those erotic movies for adults or whatever, because these movies, like to explain to a generation, I guess, that didn't grow up with these, they it was almost like Tales from the Crypt for softcore. You They would get kind of up and coming like music video directors to work on these, and then they would get like stars to appear in them and kind of these stories that were kind of wraparounds to basically the sex scenes, which were pretty soft and pretty like, you know, the nudity filled movies, but they weren't like really graphic or anything like that. And yeah, they would just run on late night cable. 
all the time. And they made like a hundred of these Red Shoe Diaries movies with that model. They're just a just a bygone. It's a, something of a bygone era for sure. I thought they were supposed to be of the perspective of women kind of like being, you know, like, oh, they also have this erotic tales to tell female perspective, I think, mm-hmm. is like kind of the Red Shoe Diaries kind of vibe. Uh, again, soft, not super graphic. Movies for couples, I guess, is probably how they would have advertised it back in the day. Good luck getting me to watch one of those. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, they made a fucking million of them. Yeah. Because even on the next Amityville, there's another trailer for another one of these. So they're just, yeah, another one of those Republic pictures, they could just kick out a ton of them and... Like I said, they put stars in them. You know, that's how they kind of got the movie sold. Uh, this one, I think Matt LeBlanc is in this one. Uh, randomly, that uh, another woman's lipstick that is advertised on this one. Got to start somewhere. That's right. <laughs> and now, our feature presentation. So let's get into the story of this. Uh, we have a bunch of people living in one building. And I knew right away. I was like, oh, this is going to be a building movie where they just stick in one building Uh, a couple streets. I'm fine with that. I just love it because you can tell right away because they always love to introduce people all walking into the same building and they do it in this. It's like a small trope that I always notice about one location building movies. Like they always have all of them somehow magically arriving at the building at the same time. Oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, good. Blah, blah, blah. See you on Thursday. You know, something like that. I actually like this more than sort of the approach of the rest of the movies in this series because the rest of the series also is like single house movies. And now we've kind of got an urban location where it's not just a suburban family. It's sort of this makeshift artist family. It's a little more relatable i guess too and maybe that's just because i'm from a city or whatever but it's like we're finally out of the suburbs and we're not just in one house with one family we've kind of got different perspectives here for a change and this is the only movie in the series that has this (laughs) yeah and i think that's probably why they called it the next generation like it's it's now affecting the younger generation uh, in a way, instead of like the old families of the past, I kind of mocked it and everything like that. But at the same time, I get why they do this. I think it's smart because you can spend more of your money on other things. You don't have to worry about going to different locations. You, you, you're in one area. And that's what's good about shooting in L.A. like this. You're in one area. You can get it all done. You know, sure, they can go to, you know, the morgue or whatever or the other places they go. I think they shoot a few locations. It's a very small movie. And they're concentrating on basically the ending, which I understand. Yeah, it's like, I like the way that it still is, yeah, one location. It's no different from the rest of the movies. But yeah, it's it's actually a different one. But yeah, it's smart. It's still a single location horror movie, small cast. It's It's a good way to do that, save your money, and use it for effects like this movie did. Yeah, but I still love how the VHS cover still putting the house on the front. They're still selling everything on this as the house. Yep. And really, the house only appears in the image of the mirror this time. So it is pretty similar to like 1992, where uh, and it's about time you only ever see sort of the reflection of the house in the clock or whatever. Now it's reflected only in the mirror. Uh, it's not until the next one with the dollhouse that we actually get to see sort of version of the house. Uh, but even even a dollhouse, it's just a dollhouse. So, yeah, we're we're not even anywhere near New York here anymore. We're not going to see the house in person at all. That's good because I'm just tired of the house. Uh, it's it's kind of just take it somewhere else. I like the urban look that they're going here. So we get 
all the characters in there. We have the building owner named Dick, who has a wife. Uh, they seem like they're not happily married, but they also don't show them fighting. I don't know. Dick's kind of wormy type guy. I guess he's kind of like the Republican in this <laughs> with the surrounded by artists. But we also have Suki, who is a painter. And we have our main star, which is Keys. He is a photographer who has a live-in girlfriend. Yes, who is not an artist. She seems to be the one with like the job. <laughs> Whereas the rest of them all like kind of stay within the loft and just work there. Yeah, and they have another friend too, Richard Roundtree. Shaft himself is playing Polly, who makes sculptures. Now he lives somewhere else, but he's definitely part of this group of friends. He kind of feels like he has a normal job and he just does pieces on the weird pieces on the side for fun that's kind of what i was getting from his character yeah i guess i guess i kind of yeah miss sum them up because really it seems like only suki and our main guy akis just live they're the ones that live there and akis's girlfriend seems to have a real job and she comes over and then like you said uh david Notton dick is the uh <laughs> the republican of the group he's the landlord so you know he's that guy and then, uh, yeah, Polly works there. He makes his art there, but then, yeah, it doesn't stay there like the other two do. So, yeah, I guess I kind of miss uh, represented them here. But, yeah, it's, it is just the smattering of these different kind of personalities. Yeah, I call it 90s apartment family. Yep, and I like that. It was a good change for the series. The story about this one is... Uh, you know, they want to put on an art show. One of the apartments in the building is empty. So it's, you know, good for an art show. And that's kind of what most of the story is wrapped around. And then we get into Keys actually seeing a homeless man taking a photo of him that he thinks he's going to make good money off of. And then giving him, I don't know, it was like 10 or $20 uh, saying like, you know, I just want you to have this because I took a photo of you. And then the homeless man gives him a creepy mirror which totally looks like a leftover prop from Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, it definitely has that vibe. It's uh, like you get the clock in the lamp and the other two that are based on the Evil Escapes book. And the lamp is like comically horror too, but the clock is just a regular clock. This is, of course, now back like the lamp, like horrific. You know, it's got the gargoyle face on top. It's, yeah, got the, the creepy sort of vine kind of wrapping around it. Yeah, definitely Tales from the Crypty, for sure. And that's that time period, so totally makes sense. Yeah, you were not going to uh, mistaken this for, you know, like a really nice mirror and everything. This one's clearly, you buy this, you know what you're getting. That yeah, this wrong with that haunted one. as fuck, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not as comically bad as the lamp. No, I mean, that was so absurd. <laughs> that was just dumb. Still, I wish I could buy you that lamp. Give me this mirror instead. <laughs> We got to check out your hair. I mean, you got to get ready to go out. Yes. And and then also bring in a haunting and see an image of the Amityville house, because that's in this version of the story. The only way you would see the Amityville house. <laughs> well, maybe one of your ex-boyfriends can uh, stumble in drunk and accidentally die. Waking up the evil within the mirror. <laughs> that was so weird when he just comes and like they made a point in this story multiple times to let you know that she had only been dating him six days. And I was like, Jesus, you're making Suki feel bad here. Even the cop, I think at one point was just like, wait, you only knew him six days. You gave him a key to your apartment after six days. <laughs> Probably less than that. But hey, it's her life. Let her live it. I wouldn't give someone a key to my apartment that fast. It'd take months to get that. 
Yeah, I don't know. Was it was it like the uh, artist loft thing where like if you can get in the front door, you can get into anybody's apartment you want to, or like what is like the deal there? Or did she give him keys? Or maybe because at one point they showed that her door kind of was never locked. Yeah, maybe that was it too. I mean, this was 1993. The you know security wasn't as up to code as it is, is now. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it was like if you're gonna have this uh, a bunch of artists living in a loft. It ain't safe. It's cheap. And that's what you get. You get what you pay for. (laughs) When Dick bought the building, maybe the neighborhood was better. But now it's, you know, supposed to be overrun with miscreants or, you know, like poor people essentially is what they're saying. Yeah, this is like L.A. Skid Row. And I feel like this is sort of the end of this Skid Row era. So you kind of get this is the last kind of filmic representation before it all got cleaned up or or forgotten and abandoned. Yeah, this is that that artist living in like a not a condemned building but an old building it was fun i i liked that portion of it but yeah he comes in the the ex-boyfriend i don't even I, it was just like some dude that she slept with and then he's now coming in with a drunken stupor being an idiot and the the mirror kills him and then we get introduced to terry o'quinn detective clark who comes into this film and man terry o'quinn everything he's in he is great just carries every scene yeah, I mean, he is he's character actor extraordinaire. He was doing a lot of these kind of horror movies at this time, too. He had just come off of like two of the stepfather movies Dude just worked and he's character actor and he's great in this. And he's, you know, he's working alongside of a bunch of other great character actors. We didn't even mention that that boyfriend who dies in the mirror is Robert Russler from Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Weird Science. So even that side character is another great character actor. And yeah, Terry O'Quinn comes in and basically commands every scene he's in. Yeah, and you were mentioning before we started recording, because I I said, like, he just makes everyone around him better. And then you explained your theory of why. Yeah, I just think he's he's an actor that listens, as opposed to, like, an actor who's, like, waiting for his next line of dialogue or just, like, waiting to speak, waiting to steal the show from the actor. He gives, so he's listening, he's reacting, to the actor he's playing with. So not only does he look good, but then he makes them look better too because he's listening. And I think that's a big key for these great character actors. That's something that they do. Yeah, and I wish that he could have gotten into bigger roles when he was younger. But, uh, you know, I'm glad he got into Lost because his career kind of took off really late in his life because I'm sure he was well into his 50s then. But, you know, I'm glad general audiences got to see him and appreciate, you know, what he's still doing. Uh, and I hope he I hope he's one of these guys who acts until he's like dead because I just love to see him on screen. I think he will be. I absolutely think he will be. I think he's going to be around for a while. He's had so many credits already. And yeah, now he's popular. You know, people he's more he's more mainstream of an actor. So I think he's going to keep working. And then people are going to find his roles like in this and like the stepfather movies and stuff like that as they go back is he continues to be in hundreds of movies, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, he's awesome. He's great and everything. And I could tell when he was with Ross or Keys, I'll call him his character's name, when he was with Keys and they were talking, how he bounced everything back to Keys and just made what this young actor was doing look better. Because he wasn't, a, none of these characters are bad, but you can tell a lot of them are just there for the day. They probably took their like first or second reading of their lines and they're not quite crisp sometimes and then other times you can tell they fully rehearsed as the film gets to the end they're not as stiff there are parts in the beginning of this where i'm like oh come on that was like their first go 
don't do that. <laughs> Give him a couple line reads. Yeah, I, I feel like this Ross Partridge who plays Keys, I feel like he played this part too forever. Like, I feel like he was kind of the leading, handsome leading man, sort of befuddled by the situation he's put in, whether it's a horror movie, a thriller, a drama. This is like the face he's making throughout the beginning and rest of this movie is sort of kind of what he made a career on early on. Yeah, I just always remember him as the dinosaur guy from the Lost World at the beginning. He was like, you're the dinosaur guy. <laughs> and he goes, rawr. He does that with his hands. He's chewing the gum obnoxiously. You're him, right? Excuse me? The scientist, the guy. I saw you on TV. I believed you. Uh, yeah, that's what I always remember him as. The thing is, like this film to me, a lot of it I thought was really just kind of stale and boring until the like last 25 minutes. And I think most of it is him. Uh, he seems like he's trying to play this as as serious as possible. But this movie, on the other hand, kind of has moments of cheesiness. So I, I feel like there's like there's a conflict of mood. Like, I don't quite know what they're trying to do with it. I agree. And I think it's actually tied to what you were just saying. I think for like a lot of the green actors in this, like like uh, Keys and then the woman who plays his girlfriend and Sookie and the younger people in this, I think they're taking it way more seriously. And then I think like guys like David Naughton and Robert Russler and Terry Quinn know they're in kind of a cheesy horror movie and they're kind of playing that. So I think what you're getting is sort of this dichotomy with these young actors who are like trying to show their dramatic, serious range. And then you've got kind of more of these seasoned actors who are there to play because they know it's kind of a sillier movie. So we do have the juxtaposition. And like you were saying too, like the first half of this movie the first two thirds of this movie, however you want to break it down, is slower. It totally is. And then it ramps up and becomes kind of the sticky direct to video horror movie in like the, the last third. Uh, so I think there is a lot of that kind of but the movie's at odds with itself a little bit throughout because of that. Well, you get a lovely. Um... Oh, Lin Shea is also in this. Yep. Yeah, this is kind of where the movie gets more interesting to me is like when Lin Shea's in there and she's playing such a like awkward character and I loved it. I, I kind of wanted to rewind and just watch her scene again because I didn't know if she was trying to hit on keys or she was just like never sees any humans ever. So she doesn't even know how to react, you know, uh, interact with them. Uh, but anyway, she's like, it's it's in the it's in the folder. And then I'm like, is she hitting on him? Yeah, I think the brilliance of her performance is the fact that she's doing both of the things that you said. She's like hitting on him, but also never has interactions with humans. So isn't quite good at it. Yeah, it's really fun to watch. It's a really fun scene to watch. And she's like, beyond just being like flirty and it's like kind of like socially awkward. It's also like kind of creepy because now we've kind of dialed up the kind of weird in the movie as we're getting towards the end. So she's like really bringing it with this three dimensional character for this this character that's on screen for like five minutes. So I feel like she knows what type of movie she's in. Richard Roundtree definitely knows what type of film he's in because he is just fun to watch. Uh, he is just this kind of like he's tiptoeing into complete cheese, but then he gets like a really serious look when something bad happens. Like he knows what type of film he he's in. And Terry O'Quinn, even though he never gets cheesy until the very end, you can tell he's like, well, I'm the detective. 
I'm supposed to be the serious one. I'm supposed to be laying down all this exposition of this crazy past. And yeah, you're right. All these younger actors, even though I think Suki at one point kind of understands what type of movie she's in when she's kind of possessed. Yeah, she gets to play a little bit more at that point. And I think, yeah, that's where she lets loose. And we know that she's gone on to have like a pretty stacked career. She's worked for a long time. But so she knew, too, what she was kind of getting into. But yeah, it took her a while to get there. Yeah, and I, I really liked her paintings. That's one thing that stuck out to me. I don't know what artists got to have fun making these, but they're fantastic. Yeah, who has those? I would love to get one of these. Like the Amityville New Generation uh, gigantic demon paintings. They're so cool. Now, let's talk about this mirror, what exactly it is, because I don't understand what it is. Well, I don't know if it was supposed to be like you look into the mirror and it possesses you. Or it makes the building evil? I was very curious what the hell the, the magic that this mirror has. I think it's some more of the magic just of Amityville where it possesses some people and then it is just this general evil and there's and it is spitting out demons too. So it's kind of like a little bit of everything because we saw that with the clock too where the clock was like part of the house but also then possessing a couple of the people within the house. It's the same kind of vibe, I think. It attaches itself to some people and the rest is just kind of general haunting and demons and things like that. It also has this thing where it has the rewritten history. So even though this is the seventh movie in the series and the second movie in the series kind of covers the DeFeo murders kind of with the family, we're rewriting that. We don't have the DeFeos in this. We have a different family. And it, spoilers, turns out to be Key's family. Key's father is in the Amityville house and basically does the DeFeo murders on Thanksgiving. We've rewritten that. It's not the DeFeos anymore. It's Key's family. Uh, and he, his dad kills his family, minus Key's, obviously, because he's still alive, on Thanksgiving. And uh, the mirror is present at the time. So the mirror carries the evil of Amityville. Yeah, okay, I guess because it happened in the mirror, uh, I guess that's the evil with it. I was really confused because I read someone else online that said that this took place before the DeFeo. And I was like, wait, so there's been like three incidents, two of them, the exact same one where someone kills his entire family with a gun. But I think you're more right. I think they're just pretending like this family is the DeFeos in a way and they just rewrote it. Yeah, I get the I get the impression and this is not something that I explicitly know, but I kind of get the impression that Evil Escapes four movies, the part four, It's About Time, Dollhouse and this one, New Generation. These four are their own series. And then you've got the original trilogy that is its own series. And then five, Amityville Curse is just kind of a spinoff. That's kind of the impression I'm getting because the same producer did these four, Steve okay. White, who ended up directing the eighth one. He produced all four of these, so I feel like they are their own series. They're the Evil Escape series. They're the Cursed Object series, if you will. So I think they kind of have their own history, and then you've got the history that's within the trilogy as well. And then we can all just forget about five because it's the worst one. <laughs> so boring. <laughs> so boring. Oh, my gosh. The whodunit detective Canadian film. Mm, yes, that doesn't even have the house. <laughs> I don't even want to put Canada on that. It's just it's bad because it's a whodunit detective film in a haunted house series. What? Yes. And it's not even the haunted house of the series. <laughs> anyway, I you know, I want to know how good of a spin man this producer is after coming off number four and you still get three more films that you're allowed to produce in the series. That's incredible, man. You must have been one hell of a spin guy. 
<laughs> well, and it's about time made money. So that probably helped get these other two out, at least. <laughs> but how he got from part four to it's about time, I don't know. <laughs> what a leap. <laughs> he was capitalizing on the made-for-TV boom of the 80s with four, and then in it's about time was seeing the direct-to-video boom. So I, maybe he just was capitalizing on those two things. <laughs> <laughs> that's the type of producer I want. I was like, how did you get me this? Because like, you, you don't want to know. <laughs> I got pictures if you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, so later on in this film, they finally get their art show going. And Keys has been like, you know, struggling with all of this. He's like, oh, I just found out my dad's a murderer, which would be pretty fucked up. But then he finds out that his dad killed his mom in front of him. And that's a pretty violent scene because it comes out of nowhere. You know, you're watching this kind of like semi-serious, semi-goofy horror film. The actor is playing his father as well, like just with shaved eyebrows. And he jumped leaps out of nowhere and just smashes his mom's head to pieces on the ground. They don't show it, but you hear it. It's pretty violent. Yeah. And then, you know, the, do the dinner scene and the dad gets his like face blown off. Yeah, that's right. Very yeah. violent. Uh, I just, I was sitting, I was like sitting. It's if you could have just been like a fly on the wall when I was sitting and watching the movie. I'm watching the movie. It's dead silent in there, and I'm just watching it and I'm enjoying it or whatever. And then the then the scene happens where the face gets blown off of the dad, and I'm just sitting there, and you just quietly hear from the couch, "Nice." <laughs> <laughs> so if you could just be uh, just silent in the room, and then boom, nice, and then come goes back to being silent in the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was a couple scenes i was impressed that they uh this is the money that they're spending on they can get a few practical effects some makeup job and everything and i i was actually surprised that they went that far and i'm like well it's direct to video kind of do whatever you want yeah exactly it's way looser you're not trying to uh combat the mpaa and try to get in theaters here so you can go wild even some of the effects, like the mirror stuff, when I know mirror stuff is super hard to do in film just in general, because how are you going to do it? You can't point a camera at the mirror. You're going to see the camera. And it, so I know it's difficult. And they pull off some cool stuff with the mirror, and it's all smoke and mirrors, if you will, uh, practical effects within the, within the camera. And they brought back the guy who did the effects for the original movie for that. And I thought that was pretty cool. And I think some of the effects of like, the you know demon head that they see in the mirror and things like that and the red light that kind of comes through the mirror the evil that pulses through it look really cool i think some of the effects for that besides just sort of the makeup effects which are also really good were pretty cool in here no i agree they definitely use some older tricks uh, for in-camera effects on that mirror which you're right very difficult to do especially at this time period now you can use cg and kind of you know manipulate it any way you want but back then tough and not to mention anything that they would use computer wise with this would would look like shit. Oh, yeah. If they were going to try 1993 direct to video CGI, it would look really bad. So they went with the old school approach. and I think it works. Another thing it's got going in its favor for that, too, is we've got an Academy Award winning cinematographer working on this movie. Obviously, he hadn't won the Oscar yet. But Wally Pfister, who shoots all of Nolan's movies. Uh, shot this and he won the Oscar for Inception. He shot this early in his career. And I think it has some of the earmarks of his style where it is very like colorful, neon soaked and just like a, a good looking movie. Now, you can tell a couple of the scenes, especially when uh, Sookie 
reveals all of her paintings, uh, interesting camera work inside that, especially with the lighting as well. Composition, you can see, is a little bit different from the rest of the film. Because a lot of the film, you can tell they're shooting this fast. It's place the camera, let them act, move it a few times, let's go. Uh, especially the beginning. Like, the first 45 minutes of this is fast. But then you get the painting scenes, you get the uh, end where he comes and he's basically they're all sitting around a table. It's his uh, he's getting the final art show and he comes in with a shotgun uh, and he's going to blow all four of his friends away. And then he fights the evil and we get the incredibly cheesy line by Terry O'Quinn because he shoots the mirror to defeat the evil. And Terry O'Quinn comes because you defeated the evil, but you got seven years bad luck or something like that. I just cracked up. Now, if you would have been a fly on the wall in that, I would have been like, yeah, there you go. That's how you end it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. This is a 90s movie. Yep. <laughs> Early 90s. <laughs> One liner city. Yeah, absolutely. And then like that's just kind of how the movie ends. But like tied to that, I could watch Richard Roundtree sharpen a knife for 90 minutes and it would be compelling. <laughs> Everything he does in this movie is interesting. He's just got a way of capture, you know, like right when you put the camera on him, you know, just give him a few lines of dialogue and then let him take it from there because he's one of these actors that like he can do whatever he wants. And it's interesting. I don't know what he does, but he does it well. Beyond just being a great actor, he just drips this charisma. Yeah. It's magnetic. So like, yeah, he's got this. And of course, too, he has this really cool because, again, they're all artists. So his art installation is this really cool, like, sofa connected to a TV, connected to a shotgun. You know, that's very, again, 90s. But it's like a, a crazy art piece. And he's just sitting in it with this, like, smirk on his face. Yeah, he's so watchable. Yeah, he really is. I mean, even when he leans over to the guy uh, who sits in his uh, art, you know, <laughs> his little sofa with a shotgun pointing at it. And he's just, get out of my chair. <laughs> everything he does is interesting it's fun i think he was eating cheetos too which i but he was eating puffy i would expect richard roundtree to go with the crunchy but you know you just never know maybe that's all they had on set but yeah. you know all badasses are crunchy cheeto yeah. people so <laughs> you know I, i'm assuming you know like one of their uh staff members didn't get back from the store in time to give him his crunchy he's like fine i'll do puffy <laughs> I'll make this work even with puffy Cheetos. And guess what? Damn it, he does because he's, he is shaft for Christ's sake. <laughs> I think him and Terry O'Quinn and probably David Nolan, uh, you know, they're one, two, three, the best in this movie. Oh, and then Lin Shay. Yeah, Lin Shay is also great. There's another, I wanted to point out too, there's another great character actor who makes an appearance as a morgue attendant. We get Tom Wright who from most of the listeners would probably know from Creepshow 2 as the hitchhiker. Thanks for the ride, lady. This is the morgue attendant. And he's super weird and kind of wormy in this too, giving a fun kind of like two-minute performance uh, in there. But it, again, it's great to see him. Character actor who's been in like over 180 things. So again, another benefit of probably shooting in LA. You could get a guy like that to just do a two-minute scene and he's going to give it his all. And there's one part... He says something weird. I can't remember what it is, but Terry O'Quinn gives him a look. He had no idea he was going to say that. He just played right off that line because it was just a short little scene. I saw Terry O'Quinn look at him and then there's a cut. And I'm like, probably because he cracked up afterwards. It's just two guys at the top of their game just riffing. And it's good. It's delicious. Oh, that look. I wish I could freeze frame it and just send it. 
<laughs> uh, the look you gave me when I said, let's do the last five Amityville movies. <laughs> yep, that look. Oh my God, uh, yeah, so that, that'll end uh, the discussion on this. Before we go in the museum, I don't like to give the ratings on these, but I think this is a step down from the last one. I thought It's About Time was a really good sequel to kind of like setting itself apart from the original three and sort of connected to four, uh, maybe, I don't know. And then, you know, basically it made us all forget about four and five. I think this one's a little bit of a step down and it's because not everyone's on the same page of what type of movie they're making. I can, I can agree with you in that because I do see sort of the dichotomy of like the serious actors doing a drama versus sort of this cheesy horror sequel. And I, I obviously like more of the cheesy horror sequel aspect of it, but I do disagree with you in that. I think I like this one more than it's about time. It gives me a little bit more of the, the sticky monsters and a little bit more horror action than the last one did because the last one's paced the same way where it's two thirds is more of a serious movie. And on the last third is kind of horror. this one does the same exact setup. Uh, but I, I actually like this one a little bit more. I think it delivers uh, a little bit more of the goopy stuff that I like, but I also, like I said at the beginning, think this is the first Amityville movie that I saw. So maybe it's just nostalgia for me. I don't know, but I do. I like this one better. So now we're getting into a point in the series where it's like, oh, I like this one with It's About Time. And then I'm like, oh, I like this one a little bit more. So we're stepping in the right direction away from four and five, which are the worst in the series. <laughs> yeah, step away from five as much as possible. Don't step away, run away from it. <laughs> run away from five. Yeah. And I think this one's still a vast improvement over five. But that's not saying much. But yes, yeah, low are, bar yeah. to clear for yeah. sure. Uh, <laughs> like, but I actually, geez. yeah, I really like this one. I think this one's super fun. Yeah, it definitely has its moments, and it's got some actors in it that just do whatever they want. But when you're looking at it as a whole, this doesn't do enough to attract people to it. This is going to be more of like you and I. Like, I'll probably never rewatch this film. That's what I'm saying. It's just I'm watching it because of the franchise review. Uh, there's just not enough in this to capture, you know, a, a really big audience. It's just okay it'll get you to rent it and that's why they made money especially that cover they need something bigger they there needs something else in this i don't know what it is but there's not that scene that you can point towards i can see that yeah i i, I if i were going to recommend this movie to people too i would kind of recommend it to people that like this kind of thing i think it does fit within sort of the it checks all the boxes for those early 90s direct-to-video horror movie thing which is which were the movies i grew up on and i i love those movies and you know, as like a full moon fan, like these are it's nostalgia and I deeply love these movies. So I would recommend this movie to people that like stuff like that. If you grew up with full moon or you grew up with Vidmark movies or the Vestron movies, the basically the direct to video stuff in the 90s, this fits right in. So I think I would recommend it specifically to people who like stuff like that. But yeah, the more normal kind of horror fan who likes more broad stuff may not be super interested in checking this one out. Let's go on to the museum. This is the second time I've had to reclaim my property from you. That belongs in a museum. So do you. This is the part of the show where we go out like Indy into the film jungle and bring something back. Our Amityville wing of the museum, which is gigantic now. <laughs> Since you, this is probably the first one you ever watched. I'll let you go first. 
There's so much little things I can pick apart that I really like about this movie, whether it's the effects, the mirror, some of the character actors in it or whatever. But I think one of the, the big draws for me early on, and if we're going to talk about that early on, I think for this one is it's the cover. It's got a great cover. And if you're going to judge a book by its cover, which we do all the time, I think this one has a, a cover that both going to make you rent it and still pretty indicative of the movie you're going to watch. It's not like going to have a monster on the cover that doesn't even appear in the movie or whatever. You're getting you're getting what you're signing up for. But I think it's a it's a perfect representation of these 90s direct-to-video movies. So I'm taking the cover for the museum. I really like it a whole lot. Yeah, I can't argue with you. I think it's a great cover. I think they did a good job. You've already got the franchise name attached to it, and you came out with like this lovely, gimmicky-looking 90s cover. Perfect. That's exactly what you do, and that's why they made their money. Yeah, and I like the sort of... All the movies sort of have a different title treatment for Amityville within it, and I like the font and stuff they chose for Amityville here. It's very like Carpenter meets Tales from the Crypty kind of Amityville. And it sort of shows more the creepiness because I think the title treatments in the other movies is more sleek and more even. And this one's kind of rough. And I like that. Uh, so even just beyond just the image on here, I like the title treatment of the title of the movie here as well. So Cover covers it all for me. Yeah, it is. It's nice because the Amityville and it kind of like represents the shards of broken glass. Uh, I'm going to put in those giant paintings. Those stuck out to me. So if I was lining the walls of this like little area you were walking through in our museum, it would be like that urban aesthetic, you know, kind of like brick. But there's like broken plaster in front of it. And then you just have these giant paintings hanging everywhere with a hanging suki in the middle. Of course. Of course. course, (laughs) I mean, it is Amityville. So, yeah, that's I I love those paintings. And I agree with you. If I could find I don't know if I, I mean, I can't put it in my apartment. That thing is gigantic. You'd have to have like a basement and then just like have that thing like show off to everyone and then bring it out around Halloween. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's all you could do with these because these things are massive. You'd have to have like an artist loft, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. And I would have loved to seen her actual full show. Yeah, I would have loved to detail on every one of those mm-hmm. paintings because they look so cool in the movie. Yeah. And then uh, you could have her running around with no bra on with her overalls. Yeah, her kind of look throughout the movie which is just like this great 90s artist look too oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah she's kind of like got that deer in the headlights but also that sexy like artist like oh no you know that kind of thing that they Mm -hmm. always played into yeah Mm -hmm. and especially dick fell for it he's just like i've always been attracted to you you're cheating on your wife you dirty dirty republican (laughs) yeah he's such a goof like he's such a loser he comes back he shows up back at her apartment he's like i can't stop thinking about you All right, that'll end it this week, but we're coming back with number eight next week. Number eight, Matt. Wow. Almost there. <laughs> As we make our way through the 10 uh, movies, we're coming back with uh, the last of the Republic Pictures ones with Amityville Dollhouse. So come back next week to listen to us talk about the Dollhouse. <laughs> and remember to be kind. And rewind. Haley Piper. Patrick Lacey, S.E. Howard, Waylon Jordan, and Jeremy Herbert. Five acclaimed authors of horror and dark fiction. Their twisted tales appeared in the acclaimed horror anthology Worst Laid Plans from Grindhouse Press. 
Now, their tales of vacation terror are coming to the big screen in a feature film adaptation from Genre Blast Films. Five acclaimed genre filmmakers will bring these stories to life. Samantha Koyesnik, John Hale, Vanessa Yonta Wright, Michael Escobedo, and Jeremy Herbert. Worst Laid Plans. Now crowdfunding on Indiegogo. This is one vacation you'll be dying to take. 